Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. No matter how far you run from them, childhood tragedies have a way of catching back up with you. So is true of elite scuba diver Veronica West, who is about to encounter something unexplainable at the bottom of the ocean, something that will draw her back to her home on Sinclair Island, Maine. There, she'll lead a dangerous rescue mission to the bottom of the Bay of Fundy, home of the world's largest tides, and something horrific down in the depths. Listen to Narcosis, the latest horror fiction show on Realm's premier horror channel, Undertow. Narcosis is available now. Search for Undertow or Narcosis, wherever podcasts are served. My name is Jane Borowski, host of Invisible Tears. This podcast will be about my story and my words, talking about my own personal experiences and self-healing. I do not claim to be a therapist, counselor, or a licensed psychologist. Hello, my name is Amanda Bedard, and I'm the co-host, producer, and editor of Invisible Tears. I'm a Reiki master, certified professional life coach, spiritual coach, wellness coach, and a counseling practitioner. Some of the content you will hear in this podcast may be disturbing to some. Viewer discretion is advised. But it is our hope by putting this information out there that we may help others to heal. We will always be a platform for truth, and healing. This is Invisible Tears. Welcome to Invisible Tears. I'm Amanda, co-host of Invisible Tears. Unfortunately, we don't have Jane again today, but we do have Abriana back for this overview episode. Hi, Abriana. Hello. Glad to be back. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining in again. We're going to be covering another cold case, and it makes sense that we would go into covering this cold case because of the connection to the last cold case that we covered on Invisible Tears, Luella Blakesley. So the cold case that we're going to be covering today is the case of Deborah Horn. Now, Deborah was just 11 when she disappeared from her home in Allentown, New Hampshire, and now I actually just looked it up because while I do live in New Hampshire, I'm not super familiar with that area over there. But I remember saying in the Luella Blakesley overview that how closely they were actually within miles. And I was like, wait a minute, these are different towns that they're they're talking about. So Luella actually was last seen alive in Hooks at New Hampshire. So and Deborah disappeared from Allenstown. So just to put into perspective for anybody that's not familiar with the area, Hooksit and Allenstown are only five miles away from each other. I did not know that. <laughs> yep. So I actually looked it up because I was like, wait a minute, it's referencing different towns. I want to make sure that we're accurate. And so I looked it up. Those towns are actually, so they're literally right next to each other. So they're only five miles apart. So the case of Deborah goes like this. Now, mind you, Deborah was only 11 years old. Breaks my heart. Deborah was last seen January 29th, 1969. That's a long time. <laughs> yes. That is 
such a long time ago. And if you're remembering back to the, the Luella Blakesley case, this is almost six months before Luella actually ended up disappearing. Mm-hmm. All right. So Deborah was last seen January 29th of 1969. So that morning, Deborah got up, got herself ready for school, picked out all of her clothes, put on some jewelry that she always wears. That's an, an important piece of this story for identification purposes. She and her brother went out to the bus stop. And on the way, she slipped on ice and hit the back of her head near the base of her skull. Her brother helped her up and the two of them went back to the house. Deborah's parents agreed that she should probably stay in and rest. Who knows how hurt she was, so she should probably stay home and rest for the day. And before they actually left for work, they did say that um, they left at 9 o'clock in the morning and that she was feeling better. Yeah. So her mother knew that she was going to come home and actually check on her around lunchtime, right? Just let her rest for a few hours. Mm -hmm. Well, Luella's mother came home to check on her daughter, and she immediately knew that something was wrong. One of the family's two poodles had gotten outside into the front yard, and the front door was actually open. Panic sets in, obviously. Yeah. I can only imagine. So she immediately knows that something's wrong. So she calls out for her daughter, scours the house. She's nowhere to be found. She does make note that her snow boots and her winter clothes are still inside. Yep. Yep. Bad feeling, right? So she starts phoning Deborah's friends, speaking with neighbors, trying to find her, and nobody has seen or knows anything. So Deborah's mom, Myrtle is her name, calls the police. So in the hours that followed, a massive search proceeded. There were over 100 volunteers that were searching, you know, around their residents, and they even started, you know, spanning out. Search dogs were brought in by the state police. Divers were brought in to search the partially frozen uh, Suncook River. The National Guard even offered their their services for additional um, searchers. Manchester Civil Air Patrol took to the skies. So they were really trying to scour for, I, I mean, initially think, oh my God, did she just, did she just wander off, right? Yeah. Especially without any of her winter clothes, winter boots. Obviously it's January 29th. You can imagine how cold it is. Several acres in Bear Brook were inspected by game wardens and volunteers. So with a tremendous amount of land to cover, they worked into the night. Everybody's searching for her, right? On January 30th, so the next day, police dogs led investigators to a location that was roughly about a mile and a half from where Deborah lived because there was a minimal amount of blood that was found. Now, they collected a sample, sent it to a lab for testing, and it was determined that the blood was actually from a respiratory tract of a human. So somebody coughed up blood. There was mucus in it too. So that is all that they could determine though. They did deem that it wasn't probable that it really had anything to do with Deborah. It was just somebody spitting some bloody mucus in the snow, which is Ew. gross. Yes. Yeah. Yep. But so with all those resources and with working nonstop to try and find her, that is all they found, even with dogs. Mm-hmm. So that's sad. Yeah, that is sad. That's really sad. I have the utmost confidence in police dogs, too. You know, if there's something that they can find, they're going to find it. They're like trained really well. They are trained really well. So with that being said, this lead was a dead end. 
The next thing that happened was, so I mean, obviously the police continue to search and and I think smaller search parties still ensued trying to search for her, but the police went on to like interviewing neighbors and things like that. What happened was the police came up with a possible scenario of, of what might have happened. So the Horn's neighbor, so Deborah's neighbor, Jack Gould, had materials in his yard that he was using for a home renovation. And they thought that there was an attempted burglary at his house Mm -hmm. because some pieces of his material were actually found over in, you know, Deborah's property. Yeah. So they suspected, well, possibly she saw something and, you know, that was the case of, you know, why she was taken and that sort of thing. They were also searching and going through possible like offenders, possible like sex offenders and people that had charges of sexual misconduct and burglary. So that was one possible lead that they had, but they really didn't have any lead on who the burglar or possible burglar was, right? Yeah. April comes around and a man named Angelo Navarro came forward and said that he had information on where the missing girl could be found. The reason why he came forward and said that, though, was because rewards started being posted. Rewards for information regarding where she was or for her safe return. So obviously missing people's rewards were put out there publicly. And this man came forward and said that he had information as to where she was. And he demanded $20,000 as a reward in exchange for her returned and threatened to kill her if the money was not left for him in a local supermarket in Manchester. Yeah. Yeah. Messed up. It is messed up, especially because he had no information about her. He didn't have her. He wasted resources and time, and then he was arrested for it. So it wasn't a very smart plan that he had. <laughs> I was just going to say, it's kind of stupid. Pretty stupid. Um, so that then was a dead end. And as there are no other pieces of information, no other leads or anything like that, it seems to start going cold until August 10th of 1969. Mm -hmm. Three young men in Sandown, New Hampshire, came across an abandoned vehicle. And in the process of checking it out, for some reason, they popped the trunk and they were unspeakably alarmed by what they found. They found a tiny, unclothed, and mostly skeleton set of human remains. That's sad. Yeah, it's really sad. Yeah, so the people that found her, uh, 26-year-old, 19-year-old, and 17-year-old. Why would you pop the trunk, though? I, you know what? That piece kind of bugged me, too. I don't know. I mean, I know that when I've been, you know, hiking around in woods and sort of exploring and stuff like that, obviously not on private property, but, and you see, like, abandoned things, like, yeah, I mean, I can understand going in and checking it out and, So apparently this was a 1952 Plymouth that was abandoned and it literally looked like it was abandoned in the middle of the woods. Mm -hmm. So I can understand going and exploring it. Popping the trunk though? I I don't know. I don't know. See, I don't know what I would do in this situation. Right. I don't think you know what you're going to do in this situation until you're put into the situation. Yeah. Obviously they found the car for a reason Mm -hmm. and they may have been drawn to open up the trunk for that unfortunate reason of actually finding her remains. So... After she's found, obviously, police are called. So the abandoned vehicle actually belonged to Dwayne Steinhoff. His residence was located about a thousand feet away from where this abandoned vehicle is. And so I guess there's a small hill that sits between his home 
and where this abandoned vehicle was. As police were talking with him, he said that he hadn't actually seen anything and his 52 Plymouth had been sitting in that same location for over four years with several other junked vehicles. So it's just where he disposed of his junked vehicles. Yeah. So he was quickly ruled out as knowing anything or as a suspect or anything like that. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife, Maggie, and son, Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule. History so interesting, it's criminal. And now back to our episode. Because the body was so badly decomposed, there were a couple of items that were found in the trunk with the remains. There was a gold ring with an oval stone on it, and there was a silver earring. And based off of those two pieces of jewelry, the family was able to identify that that was, in fact, Deborah Horn. Yeah. Obviously, with the remains being there for so long and with how badly they were decomposed, the medical examiner wasn't able to determine a cause of death because the decomp was too far advanced. Yeah. Yeah. Also, if you were to put someone there, weird thing to say. (laughs) Weird thing to think about, right? Yeah. Us normal people don't think about that, but yeah. (laughs) Um, Why would you do it there? I mean, I kind of understand it because it's not where anyone can really see it. But how do you figure that out? Right. So, I mean, you bring up a really good point. So, I mean, it's this abandoned vehicle that's like away from this dude's property it sits back, it's covered from the road, you would have to know that it was there. And unlocked, if it was unlocked. Right. Know that it was there, know that it was unlocked. So you would have to be really familiar with the area. Yeah. Yeah, the only thing I can think of too is because of the time of year that it was obviously burying, the ground's frozen. Oh, I did not think about that. Yep, and they made her and mentioned too that especially with the time that she, or the date that she disappeared, January 29th, it was extremely cold and there was a lot of snow. So, I mean, the searching was like hard. Yeah. Um, as they were searching ground everywhere to try and actually locate her. So, when you think of, and I don't like thinking this way, but when you think about disposing of a body, burying wouldn't be an option. Yeah. In that case. But knowing that this car exists in the woods would be something that you would need to know. Yeah. There's other options than a car. Mm -hmm. But I was thinking from a police perspective, Mm -hmm. you probably wouldn't search every trunk of a car. Yeah, that's true. Must be experienced. Yeah. Or been searching for a while for places. Yep. Searching for disposal places, essentially, right? Because this car was sitting there for four years. Right. Exactly. And the police did say it's most likely that Deborah ended up in that trunk quickly after she was taken yeah like it's not like she was she was held or anything like that because of how far 
decomposed she was. So, mm-hmm. so now they have a body, but they can't learn all that much from the body besides the identity, again, because of decomp. They definitely did make sure and completely search the vehicle that she was found in, though. And there was actually a clipping that I saw of a photo taken of police sifting through the trunk to try and oh. actually uh, recover any sort of evidence or DNA or anything like that. Glad they did that, though. Me too. So now we have the remains. So now the family knows. But the remains don't give too, too many pieces of information. But then by mid-August, Robert Breest comes back onto the radar in the area because he was arrested in New Hampshire on charges of assaulting a young French woman that was touring New England with a friend. Apparently, the situation was that he had picked up two hitchhiking women, drove them to his home rather than their intended destination that they had asked to go. There he struggled with and assaulted one of the women and threatened the other with a pistol. And what's interesting is that when he spoke with a reporter from the Concord Monitor, he insinuated that the charges were false and very obviously it was a case of police harassment because he continued that investigators had searched his home three separate times in connection with not one, but two separate cases. So he's talking about the disappearance of Luella Blakesley and the murder of Deborah Horn. Yeah. So it's interesting that he would even mention that. Now, I did not actually find any record of, so he was arrested, but I don't believe any charges were ever brought against him in this incident. I didn't find any record of that. I don't believe that the woman ended up, I think they just dropped it. And went back to their home. Yeah. Yeah. And went home. Um, I don't believe they ever pursued any, any legal action or anything like that. So that statement that he made to this reporter definitely caused some antennas to go up. And now, mind you, remember, guys, Luella was questioned on the disappearance of Deborah, too. Yes. I actually ended up finding, I just want to make sure and make note of it, there was a quote in a WMUR article that Luella was actually Deborah's English tutor. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah. So there was a quote in one article that said that, but then I also read another reference that said that they think that might have just been a rumor. I can't actually figure out any way to actually confirm. So obviously Luella was questioned. We do know that, that she was questioned in Deborah's disappearance and about the whereabouts of her, quote, boyfriend at the time. Yeah. Um, So it's interesting that this article would specifically say that Luella was actually her English tutor, in which case it would make sense that she was paying attention to her disappearance as well. That's true. Right. If she was connected with Deborah. So after Robert Breast had this very public, you know, a conversation with this reporter and it was put out there, the attorney general wouldn't comment on whether he was indeed a suspect until a hearing was actually held August 27th, 1969. And the purpose of this hearing was to determine whether a hospital observation was necessary for Robert Breast. So while we jump to that piece of information, I think based off of everything that we knew based off of Luella's journal and what Luella's brother had told us about who Priest was and that sort of thing. Here's another piece of information to add to that as well. Police had an alarming interview with Robert Priest's mother, whom he lived with. When they showed up to question Robert about the disappearance of Luella, his mother answered the door and exclaimed, quote, I knew that this would happen. Whatever he did, he wasn't responsible. 
and continued explaining to authorities that her son suffered from mental blackouts and that she showed them a door in the home that he had put his fist through where he had no recollection of doing. Mm -hmm. So even with just the pieces of information that we learned about Luella's case and what Luella was dealing with with him, I mean, literally even pieces of him not even having pieces of reality, right? She's my fiance. No, she's not. Yeah. <laughs> she's a, she didn't say yes, you know. Now his mother going on record and saying that he has mental blackouts. And obviously during those blackouts, he is violent. Yeah. It was showing them proof of a broken door. It really makes you think about what was wrong with Robert Reist. Yeah. Yeah. I find it interesting that with all of these pieces of information, first we have Luella and him being connected to Luella. Then we have these... We do have an arrest, but no charges brought against him with these violent altercations with these couple of strangers. Um, we have him in being questioned about whereabouts in Deborah's case. And then we have his mother going on record and sort of even saying he's not responsible if he did anything. So we then get to the point where a judge is determining whether or not he needs to go under hospital observation. He may think he's innocent, truly innocent. He may. Well, I mean, if he really is blacking out, yeah. if he really doesn't actually remember, if he is suffering from something where he has, he truly has like almost like multiple personalities, has a severe mental illness, he may truly not remember that he's doing any of this stuff. Yeah. Not that that should be excused. But one can make an interesting argument that if you're not fully conscious about like what you're doing, are you responsible for it? Yes. And I think that isn't that in like trial to like medically unstable or something like that? Yep. Yep. So I still think he should definitely be hospitalized, but. Yeah. Yep. No, absolutely. Whether he thinks he's truly innocent is the question. It might actually explain the reason why he just continuously presumes like continually says that he's innocent for what he is charged with and in jail with right now susan randall yeah i mean he was even offered parole if he just admitted guilt and he's like i'm not going to well if he doesn't truly remember he's not going to yeah you know and another piece that was brought up at this trial right where it's determined whether or not he needs to be observed in a hospital is the hooks at police chief testified at this hearing that Robert Reist had come into the police station and he was looking to obtain a permit to carry a pistol and voluntarily told them that he had hit Luella, put her in a car and buried her in the town of Sutton. That's a little weird. It's weird. It sounds crazy. A search of the area didn't turn up anything. But I mean, one thing is definitely clear. Robert's violent. Yes. Hold on. Let's think about this logically for a second. I'm going into the police station and I'm trying to get a permit to carry a gun. And in this conversation, I admit that I hit my missing, well, in his mind, ex fiance, mm -hmm. put her in a car and went and buried her somewhere. Like, yeah, I just think it's clear from that testimony of like that interaction, like how mentally unstable like he really is. I wonder if. Like the police could say that he changed during that conversation or that if they've seen him before that he was different. 
Mm, like his demeanor, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe he went in there to get the permission, like mm-hmm. on himself, and then he blacked out during it. Right. Or he went in there fully blacked out and just was like, right. Yeah. Tell them everything, you know? Yep. Who knows? But the weird thing is, is that he didn't tell them everything. So he told them a scenario and then he said that he buried her somewhere while Luella was found buried in a shallow grave, just not where he said that she was. That's weird. It is weird. So after all of this, so after this trial, a commitment order was issued by Judge Charles Flynn after this hearing. And then it was affirmed that some of the rumors that were spreading around were true, that Robert Brees was actually a suspect in both the investigations, in Luella's and in Deborah Horn's. Yeah. Another interesting piece is that, so a commitment order was issued. I can't find anything. And I mean, of course, this is some things aren't necessarily public record, right? I can't find anything that actually says that he was actually committed and observed. Mm. The only thing that we do know is that this happened the end of August in 1969. And by 1971, he was not committed anywhere. And he was encountering Susan Randall and ended up being charged with her murder. Got it. Those are the only facts that we can actually confirm about that, which he's adamantly denying. So there's no record of him being hospitalized? I couldn't find one. Okay. All that I can find is that, yeah, a judge issued the order, an issue to commit. So, I mean, there are HIPAA laws to people's privacy in regards to medical stuff. So that may be one of the reasons why stuff like that isn't, isn't readily available out there. I'm sure if a judge issued it, I'm sure that the order was followed through on. It's just clearly between that time in 69 and we know by 1971. So, I mean, obviously, if he was committed and observed somewhere, it wasn't too long. Yeah. Yeah. Like blackouts may have you stay in there for longer, maybe even for life Mm -hmm. because you most of the time can't control them. Mm -hmm. But if they didn't see any sign of the blackouts, they may have released him or if he did blackout it would have been not as violent maybe yeah that's true i mean if he was in an environment where a stressor wasn't occurring for him to experience his blackout yeah if he was in an environment where that wasn't happening they very well could have just observed yeah not that violent behavior yeah it's interesting to know we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors and now back to our episode so back to deborah so we really only have one suspect on record for Deborah, and that is Robert Breest. So basically the only piece of information that we have with Deborah's case is that there is a suspect. But with the other cases that he's connected to, he denies any sort of wrongdoing or involvement with any of those. Yeah. Interestingly enough, I think because of Deborah's age, And because of the location of where she went missing and where she was found, Deborah is commonly linked to two other cold cases in New Hampshire that aren't Luella's. Yep. Now, the first case is of Joanne Dunham. She went missing from Charlestown, New Hampshire on July 11th, 1968, and was found the next day just 10 miles away in Unity, New Hampshire. Now, I know that Jane, while she's not here, I know that Jane definitely has an opinion about Joanne Dunham, especially because of the proximity Mm -hmm. and where she was found. 
That is the hunting grounds of the Connecticut River Valley serial killer. Yep. Now, Joanne Dunham was 15 years old when she disappeared. Because she was found the next day, they could determine that she had been sexually assaulted and that her cause of death was determined to be asphyxiation. So she was strangled. Mm -hmm. And she was sexually assaulted before that happened. Yes. I think because of her age... And because the proximity of, we don't really think of Charleston, Charlestown, New Hampshire as being super, super close to like Allenstown, right? It's actually not too, too far away. So Charlestown is about 38 miles away from Allenstown and only about 47 minutes. So it's a little bit closer um, than what I was actually originally thinking too. I am not sure if Jane feels like Joanne Dunham is actually connected within the cases or not. I know that she gets asked this a lot, but in her defense, anytime anything happens to a woman, she's asked about it. That's true. People always try and connect people to her, always. So in a future episode, we'll make sure and cover Joanne Dunham and make sure that Jane's on and that she's giving her opinion about what she feels whether it's linked, whether it's not, whether there's a possibility that it is. The interesting piece to to call out is that no known sexual assaults occurred in the Connecticut River Valley cases, Mm -hmm. right? Of course, I mean, it didn't occur with Jane and it didn't occur with Linda Moore, who was found hours after she was stabbed to death. Mm -hmm. So even though the other victims, they were found too badly decomposed to to tell if that was a component or not we know with both jane and linda moore that it wasn't a component yes so normally there is or there isn't it normally doesn't flip-flop with an offender or with a serial killer most of the time it's that piece of the component is normally consistent i got a question yeah what were the ages of the connecticut river valley the ages of the connecticut river valley victims They ranged from 17 to 37 years old. And while that may seem like a really big age range, the victims that were younger on the younger side looked and held themselves as if they were in their 20s. And the victims that were on the higher side towards like the 30s looked and appeared as if they were in their 20s. So even though the age range was really vast, one would say, Mm -hmm. I think the consistency with it was appearing as if within yep. 20s. What I was trying to get at was maybe it could have been a mix of both. Mm-hmm. Just the age. True. The age component possibly with the younger victims, possibly yeah. that the component was there. I had never thought of that. That's actually a really good point. I mean, it's a possibility. We've also heard about, you know, offenders and uh, serial killers, too, that literally changed the way and even changed their signatures as like a forensic countermeasure. So all of their crimes aren't actually linked together. Yeah. Um, Israel Keys was one of the most uh, famous for actually doing that. So you're right. It's a possibility. It definitely is a possibility. So, yes. Yeah, so Joanne Dunham, the 15 year old from Charleston, New Hampshire, in uh, June 11th, 1968. So um, Deborah's case is consistently linked to and looped in with hers. The other case is 13-year-old Kathy Lynn Glotty, and she disappeared while on an errand to a nearby store in Franklin, New Hampshire, on November 21st, 1971. She was located in a wooded area within the town. It was determined that she had been raped, and her cause of death was ascertained to be multiple blunt force traumas of her head, neck, and abdomen. 
both cases bear uncanny resemblances and similarities to Deborah's. And both of those cases remain on the New Hampshire's list of cold case and unsolved homicides. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess there's there's multiple possibilities with this case, right? Mm-hmm. Um, maybe there was someone hunting. Maybe there was a sexual predator hunting, abducting, raping, and killing children uh, within New Hampshire during this time span, you know, 68 to, to 71. This is maybe a little bit of a weird take on it, but... You said there may have been like a robbery going on mm-hmm. at the neighbor's house. Right. Maybe they saw that she was home alone mm-hmm. and saw an opportunity. That is true. And that is a good, that's a good point. Very well may have happened. I mean, in my mind, going from robbery to abduction and murder is a leap in my mind. But I guess in order to conceal crime, one could leap there. Yeah. Yeah. One could escalate to that. I suppose. Yeah. I am wondering if Deborah was a victim of opportunity or if it was someone that knew the family, if she was actually being watched because Deborah wouldn't have normally been home. It was an accident that caused her to be home and to be home alone. So if you have any information, anything at all, and believe me, I feel like I sound like a broken record at the end of these cold case reviews when we talk about these cases but it's important that if you think that you have any information even the slightest little bit could help put a piece together for investigators and can help solve crimes i mean deborah was only 11 when she was taken from this world back in 1969 54 years Deborah hasn't had justice. Her family hasn't had justice in 54 years. Speaking as a mother, that would be gut-wrenching to have my 11-year-old ripped from me, murdered, and not have any answers. So if you know something, please go on to the Department of Justice cold case website for New Hampshire. There is a tip form and a tip line, and you can do it anonymously. Let's help bring some justice for Deborah and her family. Yeah. Thank you all, Brianna. Of course. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Invisible Tears. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast to hear all future episodes. Click into our link tree too in the episode description to find and follow us on all our social medias. And it also links to our website, invisible-tears.com, where you can keep current on any events that may be coming up, read more about Jane and the team, and read more about all the Connecticut River Valley unsolved cases. If you are looking for everyday items, clothes, collectibles, or a gift for that special someone, you can support us further by checking out our retail store, The Frugal Marketplace. We can be found at thefrugalmarketplace.com or search for us on eBay and Poshmark. We hold an online claim sale on Facebook Live every Monday night at 7 p.m. where you can find our latest items for sales or items at a deep discount. The links for our products can be found in our show notes. If you want to learn more about my wellness practice, Guided Path Wellness, head to guidedpathwellness.org. There you can read more about me and my certifications, more about the Reiki and coaching services I offer both in person and remote, and read all about my products for sale that I make through the practice. Feel free to utilize the contact us section on the website with any questions or utilize that free 15-minute consultation booking button if you have any questions about what might work for you. Evil may exist in this world, but we will not let it win. See you next episode.